The unforgivable sin is willfully deciding and declaring that Jesus is not the Son of God, not the Messiah, not the suffering servant, not the Word in the flesh, but rather is an agent of deception sent by the devil. If you land there willfully and knowingly, then you will never be forgiven and you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also says here that the whole world is being divided into two camps by his ministry. Jesus is passing through humanity like a sword. And when he's done, there will be just two groups, those who are for him and those who are against him. In Revelation, these are called the camp of the beast and the camp of the lamb. Those are the options. There is nothing else anywhere in all creation. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and opposition to it continues to increase. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and opposition to it continues to increase. We see that in this story here in Matthew chapter 12. And we see it also in the world that we continue to live in today. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 12. We're in the middle of the fourth section of Matthew's gospel, sometimes titled Teaching and Preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom Against Rising Opposition. In chapter 11, we saw John the Baptist expressing surprise that Jesus would permit opposition and tolerate resistance from those he was authorized to rule over with a rod of iron. We also learned, however, that this opposition will not be tolerated forever. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus talked about the finality and severity of the coming judgment. So we witnessed a broad invitation and an increasing opposition. That was chapter 11. Now here in chapter 12, we're beginning to see where that opposition is coming from and what issues lie at the root of it. The first two stories seem to go together, so we'll read them and reflect upon them as a unit. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? 
so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, we remember back from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus can often be found defining the righteousness of the kingdom over and against the false and rejected righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus explicitly says that his righteousness is correct and true and offers the proper understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament. And he is not shy about saying that the righteousness of the Pharisees is correspondingly incorrect and that it does not capture the heart and intention of the Old Testament. And here we see that conflict continued. R.T. France is helpful here in terms of getting at the root of what was wrong with the Pharisaic approach to the Sabbath. He says, Pharisaic concern for the detailed regulation of religious duty was in danger of putting the rules before the good purpose for which they were given. The regulation of Sabbath activity soon reached the point where it required considerable erudition to know what was and was not permissible, and virtually nothing was left to private judgment. Closed quote. That was the way of the Pharisees, but that is not the way of Jesus, thanks be to God. The Pharisees regulated everything and turned everything into a matter of mere external compliance. And in doing so, they went far beyond the clear teaching of the Bible, and many wise voices even from within Judaism express awareness of that fact. One old Jewish tractate puts it this way, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For teaching of scripture thereon is scanty, and rules many. Closed quote. I like that. Mountains hanging by a hair. Now, in truth, many evangelicals grew up in churches that had an awful lot of those mountains hanging by a hair. We had rules about not cutting the grass on the Sabbath or not playing baseball on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Day. The terminology might be different church to church, but obviously the Pharisaical tendency was remarkably common. And Jesus is defining his own approach in clear opposition to that. His way is not the way of mountains hanging by a hair. In fact, I think his approach might well be labeled compassionate minimalism. He has very few rules, and he is always on the lookout for those who need kindness and compassion. I think we could use a little more of that approach in the church today. We pick up the story again in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, now let's just pause, the, the this there refers to the intention of the Pharisees to destroy him, as stated in verse 14. So Jesus, aware of that, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice 
to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is a very important passage because it reminds us that there wasn't just one stream of anticipation flowing out of the Old Testament with respect to Jesus. There was the shattering stone of Daniel 2, but there was also the bruised reed of Isaiah 42 and the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, climactically those in Isaiah 52 and 53. The Jews, however, had emphasized the one line of expectation at the expense of the other. And that has to be factored in as a major source of this growing conflict. There are two problems with Jesus, as far as the Pharisees can see. First of all, he is unorthodox with respect to the Sabbath. And secondly, he does not pass the eye test with respect to their preferred Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. He's the wrong guy, and he's preaching a false righteousness as far as they're concerned. And so Jesus withdraws from them. He didn't come to fight. He came to seek and save the lost. So he withdrew from them. He did not quarrel or cry aloud, the text says. He just moved on in search of more fertile soil. There is a lesson there for any with eyes to see. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here if I can, because I feel like the Bible is laying out one of those narrow roads between two very steep and dangerous ditches. You've used that kind of language before. It seems to fit very well here again. On the one hand, Jesus is not shying away from the need to distinguish his movement from the views and opinions of the Pharisees. In the Sermon on the Mount, he was often found saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and everybody knew what he was talking about. He said in Matthew 5 verse 20, Quote, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. So Jesus wasn't shy about coming into conflict with the teaching and example of the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet he clearly wasn't a brawler. He wasn't shouting at them in the streets and wasn't trolling them on social media. In fact, here it looks like he's going out of his way to de-escalate the conflict and to let the disagreement breathe. Am I reading that right? Yeah, you're reading that exactly right. Verse 14 says that the Pharisees were out to get him. And then verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, closed quote. Now, I think some of that was probably about timing. Jesus was always in control of the timetable. He was going to choose the time and the place for the decisive confrontation. But some of it also was about de-escalation. Jesus wanted to give the argument time to breathe. I like that phrase that you used a moment ago. I think that's exactly right. Jesus' goal was always to win his opponents. He told the truth. He pointed out error. But he was always the hound of heaven, seeking out the blind and the lost. And no group of people uh, were more blind and more lost than the Pharisees. But thanks be to God, Jesus never gave up on them. He never allowed himself to view them as the enemy. And as a result of that, there were scribes and Pharisees who converted. We think, obviously, of the Apostle Paul. So as you say, there's a fine line here between two ditches. We definitely don't want to avoid unavoidable conflict. But we also don't want to delight in conflict. 
And we certainly don't want to be contentious because that's not who Jesus was. And Matthew is eager for us to see that. He says, quoting from Isaiah 42 and applying it to Jesus, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope, close quote. I love what R.T. France says about this paragraph in his commentary. He says, The unassertive character of Jesus' ministry accords with his description of himself in 1129 as gentle and lowly. Wrangle is Matthew's interpretation of the Hebrew cry out, a verb often used of complaining of injustice. Jesus did not shout back at the Pharisees when they plotted against him, close quote. That is the example that we need to be attempting to imitate as followers of Christ. We need to draw lines, absolutely. We need to be honest about where our beliefs diverge from the dominant views of the culture, 100%. But we're not to be brawlers. We're not to be wranglers. We are not to shout back at those who plot against us. Wow. I mean, that sounds right, but it also sounds nearly impossible, humanly speaking. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Uh, this is something that we can only do by the power of the Spirit. Amen to that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This story represents the definitive break with Judaism, at least that part of Judaism represented by the Pharisees. They publicly declare that Jesus' authority and power comes from the devil. Now, this is ridiculous, of course. Why would the devil cast out the devil? But the Pharisees overlook this fact and conclude and declare that Jesus is an agent of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And that, Jesus says, is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is willfully deciding and declaring that Jesus is not the Son of God, not the Messiah, not the suffering servant, not the Word in the flesh, but rather is an agent of deception sent by the devil. If you land there willfully and knowingly, 
then you will never be forgiven and you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also says here that the whole world is being divided into two camps by his ministry. Jesus is passing through humanity like a sword. And when he's done, there will be just two groups, those who are for him and those who are against him. In Revelation, these are called the camp of the beast and the camp of the lamb. Those are the options. There is nothing else anywhere in all creation. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and opposition to it continues to increase. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. We can hear the intensity of the confrontation reaching a new level here. Jesus calls them, the Pharisees, a brood of vipers. And he also accuses them of hypocrisy, trying to look good when in fact they are evil. Why not just declare, he says, why not just be one or the other? Why do you try to look like you're following God when you are actually sons of the devil? That's what he says. You might fool some people now. But on Judgment Day, the truth will out. On Judgment Day, you'll be known and judged for everything you've ever done and for every word you've ever spoken. Reader, beware. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The great sign that all people must reckon with is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the sign. That's the miracle that these Jewish leaders, like everyone else, will have to wrestle with. The emergence of Jesus from the tomb will be an even greater sign than the emergence of Jonah from the belly of the great fish. Just as the teaching of Jesus has been so much greater even than the teaching given by God through Solomon. Therefore, the people of his generation who had front row seats for both of those great events, for both of those clear and telling signs, will be judged with the utmost severity by God. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. 
Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now, this story is clearly given as a parable addressing a particular generation. And and yet I think also it is legitimate to think through issues of personal application, application to individuals. Specifically, it suggests that people who have experienced exorcism must immediately put their faith in Christ. Remember, that's the actual event that precipitated this hostile encounter with the Pharisees. So I don't think we're wrong in hearing this on on two levels. There was a demon-possessed man in this story who was set free. Hallelujah. And, And Jesus is telling him here that neutrality now would be very dangerous for him because in his rehabilitated state, he represents an attractive target for other and potentially more dangerous demons. So this brother better stay close to Jesus. He he better get filled with the Holy Spirit or his last state will be worse than the first. I think that's a legitimate application. More generally, the saying, I think, must have been heard as a challenge to Israel as a whole. Having been cleaned up by the ministry of John the Baptist, there can be no neutrality now towards Jesus Christ. The nation, the the people must be in or out. Neutrality only positions them for further and more devastating demonic bondage. Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand, Toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. His mother and his brothers must have been very concerned by the situation Jesus was in now with respect to the recognized authorities within Judaism. Things have deteriorated quickly. Uh, Jesus began as a favorite rabbi and teacher, eagerly heard by all the people, but now he's on a collision course with the most powerful people in the nation. And so they sought to collect him and perhaps encourage him to tone it down a bit. But Jesus turns to his disciples and claims them as his true mother, brothers, and sisters. You're going to want to remember this passage when we come to the parable of the sheep and the goats. Listen to verse 50 again. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The church All true followers and disciples, we are the family of Jesus now. Thanks be to God. Yeah, well, amen to that. That's a truth that seems to mean more to me with every year that I get older. I appreciate that reminder. Pastor Paul, before we go, I want to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago in the program audio. You said, I'm quoting here, On Judgment Day, you will be known and judged for everything you've ever done and for every word you've ever spoken. Wow. (laughs) I know we've talked about this before, but explain to our listeners what you mean by that, because the first time listener might be out there thinking, oh, wait a second. I thought there was therefore now no condemnation for those who have faith in Christ. So how does that truth, which comes from Romans 8 and 1, go together with this truth that you draw out of Matthew 12, 36 and 37? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And that's exactly the sort of question that a person is supposed to be asking as they make their way through the Bible. We can't just sit on one truth and then plug our ears to other truths. Our job is to figure out how these various truths hold together. Because as you say, both of these truths are taught quite clearly in the Bible. So let's take a minute and think about that. First thing I I think we'd want to notice is that judgment is not the same thing as condemnation. Some forms of judgment actually end in vindication and reward. So let's be careful to notice that Jesus doesn't say that those who put their faith in him may one day be condemned if they have said stupid, sinful, or even accidentally heretical things. (laughs) Well, praise the Lord, because, wow, I think I've said all those sorts of things at some point over the course of my Christian life. Right. So, of, of course, we all do that, right? We all say things that are ignorant or selfish or sinful. But in the case of a real believer, the things that come out of our mouths should indicate the growth that is happening in our hearts. The point that Jesus is making here is that our words indicate the reality of our hearts such that health or unhealth will be demonstrated and can be demonstrated by appeal to our speech over the course of our lives. So, If your speech is marked by hatred, slander, malice, and dishonesty, then that will be enough to convict you of being unsaved and unregenerate on Judgment Day. Whereas if your speech indicates growth in honesty, purity, love, mercy, and kindness over the course of your life, then that should be sufficient to convict you of being a Christian come Judgment Day. So... Our words don't make us who we are, rather they reveal who we are and will be summoned as evidence of our faith or unfaith come Judgment Day. Yes, that's exactly right. All right, well, that's very helpful. I'm trying to decide if that's reassuring or terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it can be both. Uh, It's a reminder to watch our words and to take seriously what they reveal about the state of our hearts. But it's encouraging to know that if the Holy Spirit is in us, then our well will be healed and our speech will improve and transform over time. Thanks be to God. Yes, amen to that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.